what is culture? Culture is always in flux. It is the slippage between similarity and difference that we humans sometimes become acutely aware of, yet more often goes unnoticed. Welcome back to Notes from the Field. I'm Nathan Madsen, and with me is Dr. Sarah Riccardi-Swartz. Today we're talking about bias. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? I think most people, their gut reaction to bias is, it's bad, right? <laughs> you you think, okay, <laughs> someone is producing a piece of scholarship and there is bias in it. That means we can't trust it because they're coming from a particular place, they're saying a particular thing, but it's not objective truth. Mm. But Sarah, is it? I, you know, this is a great question, Nathan, because it's something I'm grappling with in my own research project. How do, what is truth? Are we in a post-truth moment? How do we recover truth? And, you know, I, I've come to the conclusion that um, truth is embodied and lived. And that means that bias is also embodied and lived. And how do we separate ourselves from bias? I don't know if as humans studying other humans, we can on some levels, right? And so I think that there's different registers of bias and we need to think think through those and acknowledge those and understand those um, and how they inform our work and how they inform our, our ways of thinking about people and ourselves. Right, I think so. I mean, think about that old adage of, you know, two people witness an event and when they go to describe it later, they have completely different stories. Right. So they see the same thing and they have two different remembrances of it, two different ways of describing it. And that's because of their bias. It's because of how they interpreted that. But it doesn't mean that both of those things are not true, even if they contradict each other. They're two different yeah. facets of the same truth. And so right. I think this idea of separating truth from bias can be sometimes unproductive. I agree. I also think that this speaks to two different things. Um, um, one is our understanding of our own reality, um, how we live and be in the world. So we could think of, you know, the buzzword, our, our ontological understanding of the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um why don't you the break other... that down for us? <laughs> oh, <laughs> how long do we have, Nathan? <laughs> right? It's it's how we live in, and, you know, it's essentially how we understand, we perceive, and we are simply being in the world, right? So my perception of the world is far different than your perception of the world based on um, learned experiences, life experiences, um, our genders, um, our sexuality, our religious or non-religious practices. And so how we come to understand the world around us, how we perceive others and ourselves, and how we actually live out those perceptions in practice is our sort of ontological life world. Right. So how do we deal with this question of should research be objective and unbiased? Those are certainly the buzzwords that you hear a lot within the quote-unquote hard sciences, like physics or chemistry or biology, but do those apply in the social sciences or in the humanities? I don't know. What do you think, Nathan? 
Well, I think, no. I think all of that information has bias. All of that information, all of that research has bias. And we can sort of deal with different degrees of bias, right? Like there is there is research out there that is extremely biased. It has an agenda and it's trying to make a particular point. And oftentimes we see that kind of information like research done by the Family Research Council on right. why same-sex marriage is a bad thing or same-sex parenting is a bad thing. And yeah. we know why that organization is producing that kind of research. But then you have something like the information produced by um, the American Medical Association that says that there's no problems with um, same-sex parenting. That right. itself has bias too. That bias might not be as extreme and it might not be as um, apparent, but it's still there. Absolutely. But just because that bias is there doesn't mean that it is something that we need to disregard, right? Right. Yeah, and I think, you know, one way to think about bias, right, especially if we look at the social sciences, is to think how we interpret data. And for us, data as, as sociocultural anthropologists who um, do qualitative research, for us, data is stories, right? These are the stories that we've gathered from people. This is the stories we have of what we've seen in the field, what we've experienced in the field. Um, and, and how do we process those in a way that is unbiased? So I think an example might be in order, yeah. right? Um, so if I look at my own research, right, I deal with far-right Christians. And when I write about them, I, I use their words to describe themselves, right? So I use large chunks of, of their own voices in my writing. Um, and I talk about the experiences that they have, the practices that they have in relationship to other communities that have these same types of practices and experiences and in relationship to institutions that support those types of practices and relationships. Now, if I was writing in my, in my research on these communities that what they're saying is bad, or what they're saying is, is, you know, morally objectable, that would be biased, right? Right. What I'm saying is, here's what's happening with this community, and here's what potentially has brought this about, and here's the potential outcomes from what they're saying, right? So if these people are extremely homophobic, then potentially that could lead to alienation of queer communities that could lead to violence against queer bodies. Right. right. And that's not biased. That's saying this could potentially happen because of the views that they hold. Now, you know, we can think as, as individuals who are doing the research that that is morally reprehensible. Right. right. Of course. <laughs> but in writing that, that would be the biased part. Right. So, and, and it is so difficult. You know, I had this conversation the other day with another anthropologist. It's so difficult to remain objective right and that and and i and for many reasons i hate that word because i don't think we can ever truly be objective about anything because we're human beings um but you have to at some point put a filter on it and say what's my emotional opinion about this topic right mm -hmm. and what's the actual data in front of me and how it relates to other things that are happening in the world right right and i think i think we as social scientists and 
you know, anthropology is at the cusp of social science and humanities. We tend to be a bit more aware of that. But let's circle back to something we were talking about earlier and and the hard sciences and scientific experiments. And how are those biased? Well, the people who are making these scientific experiments, they're creating an experiment. They are designing an experiment. They're coming up with a hypothesis. They are testing that hypothesis. But they're not testing everything. They're not able to experiment everything. And there is a degree of bias in choosing what it is that they want to experiment with, what it is that they want to test, and how they're going to write it up. And I think it's important to recognize that because there is a sort of folk knowledge that science, hard sciences, mathematics, these things are truly unbiased, that they do not carry any sort of in, any sort of partiality. They are purely objective. And if you think about it like that, that's being constructed against the idea that social scientific research and humanities research is biased and that it is somehow less worthy because of its bias. And what this episode is really meant to break down is why do we believe that certain things are objective and unbiased? And why do we think that those things that we do consider to be subjective, to be less, less, um, less trustworthy forms of knowledge. Yeah. You know, and I would encourage our, our listeners if they haven't already to read um, Emily Martin's great article, the egg and the sperm, because I think what we see there is not only that science scientific experiments often have bias and create bias, but when those are written up, right, because the data and the writing are separate Mm -hmm. when those are written up and then produced for consumption in the, in the public, whatever that may be in the educational spheres, um, in literature, in popular magazines, they are often biased in the language that they use to express the data. Right, exactly. Um, but so let's talk a little bit about audio and video recording. I do a lot of audio recording in the field, and Sarah, you're a documentary filmmaker as well as an anthropologist, so you do a lot of video. Are those things biased? I think they can be. I think when we choose to record and how we do that um, can be biased. Um, I know for myself that I, when I would record, I would try to to use a very long recording time period. So if I was doing an interview, I would start it at the top of the interview and I'd say, I'm just going to run my recorder now. And even before we sat down and we said, do you consent? It was really recording because I wanted to get them comfortable with it um, and let them know that I, I'm, I'm here for them and I'm listening to them. And I think that sometimes if we, I think bias can also function in ways that we're totally unaware of. And I think one of the ways in which it happens is um, the power relationships we have with our interlocutors. Right. And so it's very important for me that I let those recordings sort of just stay with us as we go through the process of gathering data um, and, you know, oftentimes it's just like a lot of boring stuff yeah. on these recordings, but they're, they're essential because it, it also reminds us when we go back, when we leave the field, 
of, of the sort of, not only the words that people have said to us, but the ethos. And that really helps us break down our own, our own biases. I think as we think through like, maybe why have they said that? Right. What in these recordings can we hear? Can we feel that? Can we see that have perhaps informed their, their ideas have shaped their ideas? Right. And I think, you know, especially thinking about video recording and the ways in which documentary films are made, they themselves, they are, we think about them as documenting reality, right? That's why they're called Mm -hmm. documentary films, but they're documenting, they're documenting a specific part of reality, right? The camera is pointed at certain things. It runs for a certain amount of time. It, we choose who we record and what we record and all of that is an is a bias yes and we choose who we leave out right exactly it, which is so important to remember that um you know and even when i when i read through who i've selected as a sort of voices in these narratives that i've created in my written work i think Am I being true to the ethos of this community by using these particular people? And who have I left out? And so I'm always, I'm try, I always try to sort of balance these voices that, in, in for in my work, are really like pro-Putin, pro-nationalist, um, pro-Russia, with with the the smaller, um, quieter voice of people who are are opposed to that. Right. Um, to sort of show you that, like, look, I'm not just, I'm not giving you a one-sided perception of this community. It's multifaceted, like every human being in every, in every human community. But it is hard when there's communities that sort of have homogenous views as well. Right. And I think that that, you know, that's a really important thing to think about who is being left out. In my own research, there, there are significant communities that are being left out. I work with LGBT activists in Hong Kong, and the two communities that I really focus in on are expats and um, locals. And these terms themselves are very complicated and they're not really as clear cut as everybody likes to make them out to be in the field. But the reason why these are the two focuses of my research is because that's what so many people were talking about when I was there. Does that mean that there are other LGBT activists out there? Of course, there are. There are a significant number of ethnic minorities in Hong Kong and domestic workers in Hong Kong who also do LGBT activism, and they're not included in those spaces. And it was my choice not to work with them. And it was my choice to put boundaries on my research. Because at the end of the day, we can't research everything. We have to make some of these decisions about who gets included and who doesn't. And at the same time, while that is a form of bias, we need to recognize that because, again, we can't research everything. We can't distill all of the information into one single article, one single monograph, one single PhD dissertation. Because if I was to include all of those different communities in LGBT research, why stop at LGBT research? Why not include environmental research? Why not include anti-racism research? And if I'm dealing with all of this different kind of activism, why not deal with non-activist communities? You always have to make some of these decisions when you're doing this research. And yes, that is bias. And you can recognize that bias in your read or in your 
uh, writing, you can say, these are some of the communities that exist and are not being discussed here. And mm-hmm. you have to explain why that is. And you need to acknowledge that that this research and writing is only a partial glance, glance of what's happening, but that it's still an important glance as to what is happening. Right. And if you don't do that, reviewer number two will do it for you. <laughs> yes, they will. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's true. You know, you, you brought up an important topic that our research needs bounds and we can't research everything. Um, and at the same time, we understand that as anthropologists, we sort of need to be holistic. And that's that holistic part of our research of our analysis comes when we're actually looking at what's within that bounded topic that we're looking at. Right. Um, Cause we recognize that we are human and we can't do everything. And so we look at our, our one specific scope, right? We, we see things through a particular lens, we analyze it, and then we recognize um, in sort of a reflexive manner what might our biases be as we process this? And I think somebody who does that um, quite well is, oh God, number of our days, Barbara Meyerhoff. Barbara Meyerhoff did that really well. Um, I don't know if you've ever read that, Nathan. I haven't, no. But it's just, so Barbara Meyerhoff was an excellent anthropologist and documentary filmmaker who has now left us. And uh, she worked, she was Jewish and she worked with an elderly Jewish community um, on, on the, in a beach town in California. And one of the things she recognized is her own biases as she went through this story with this beautiful community of Holocaust survivors. Um, she recognized that she was older, that she was Jewish, that she was around the same age as probably their children. And all of these things she sort of she embeds into her narrative that she has with this community. And we see how she's thinking about not only the effect this community has on the world and how the world affects this community, but how she's affecting them and how they're affecting her. Right. And it's a, it's a really beautiful, rich, not only ethnography, but a a sort of analysis of bias and what we as anthropologists are doing. So I recommend that to our, to you, Nathan, and to our well, listeners. I will. I'll, I'll look into it. <laughs> so we've talked a little bit about bias today, and we've talked about where it exists everywhere and <laughs> what it does to our research a lot. So, Sarah, I want to leave us with this question. If bias is everywhere, what does that mean? I think it means that we have to really put on our reflexive hats and think about how we analyze things and be very mindful. And I know that reflexivity and and mindfulness are super buzzwords right now, but it is really true that we need to think not only about the theories that we use and the methods that we use, but how we as people are interacting with our interlocutors and taking the information from them and using that. Um, We have to be mindful that we're using it not to our advantage, but to help people understand a particular community or a particular concept. Um, Because our goal is really to educate. And we're using this data to do that. And so I think if we're mindful of of bias and we recognize it and we recognize how it's formed within our work, um, it, it makes us more honest to our readers. 
Yeah, I would agree. And I think it's also important to recognize, too, that who we are is forming our biases. Mm -hmm. And so somebody else may be doing the same kind of research around the same time that we are, and they may be producing different results. Or our interlocutors may read what it is that we're writing, and they may come up with different different analyses of what's happening. And that it's important to recognize that that doesn't detract from our research or from other people reading our research, but they're different parts of the same whole. And that reading them together provides a wider picture, a more complete picture of the complexity of life. So Nathan, thank you for this really stimulating conversation about bias. And what do we have for our listeners next? We have ethics of representation. I think that fits really nicely with bias because bias and representation are sort of, um, they go hand in hand often and we have to be mindful of that. And uh, it's a it's a great thing to ponder. And both of us have a lot of things to say about the ethics of representation. Yes, we do. <laughs> so thank you for joining us from Notes of the Field. I'm Dr. Sarah Riccardi-Swartz. And I'm Dr. Nathan Madsen. And we'll see you next time. Production support provided by J.D. Swartz, Ran Ma, Anisha Chadha, Shravan Amin, Jerome Yao, Mauro Castro Martinez, Vivian Singh and Florence Mohamed.